yesterday we uh, were out at one of the solar power farms here in Canberra, uh, understanding the signals that were going through and, and you know where they could actually be likely risks. So being able to have that technological foundation and build up into it to to shape individual understanding for uh, individuals that didn't necessarily come from that sort of background uh, has really motivated and inspired people to think through, all right, what is this, what does this mean, and then where can I start taking, um, taking things from a defensive standpoint? Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In this episode, I talk to Edward Farrell, Director and Principal Consultant at Mercury Information Security Services. Edward has been a pen tester for about 10 years. Edward also leads courses with us at UNSW Canberra Cyber. I caught up with him when he was in Canberra presenting a course. How would you describe yourself, Edward? So how would I describe myself? Um, I would describe myself as a cybersecurity consultant, bit of a hacker, bit of a uh, bit of everything. Uh, so I, I think my life actually has several different pieces to it, uh, but I, I think probably the um, the ones that are certainly relevant are well, one I teach down here uh, at the uh, the academy uh, with you, and the other one is I uh, I also run my cybersecurity practice up in Sydney. Um, but outside of that, uh, other things, I'm a, a volunteer uh, lifesaver. I try and get as uh, engaged into the Australian cybersecurity community as I can. So uh, events such as sec talks, B-sides, um, you'll usually see me uh, floating around at, uh, at at a lot of these events. So I'm, I'm just that guy that, uh, you know, for the last 10 years has loved diving into these uh, weird and wonderful spaces. So how did you end up, uh, I guess, how did, is it having that diverse sort of life or uh, multiple puzzles in your life, is that somebody, something you typically think is associated with someone in cybersecurity or are you unique in that way? I, I think it's probably been the, the historical piece. I mean, you know, I, I come back and the, the story I like telling everyone um, is uh, my first job was in November 2005. That is to say my first real full-time techie career was November 2005. Um, I'd been doing some basic stuff for my uh, for my uh, folks before that and family because, let's face it, uh, we're, we're all uh, the family help desk at some point. But um, no, my, my first real gig was $12.50 an hour working help desk uh, in November 2005 whilst I was finishing off university. Uh, that evolved into a, a full-time career as a, uh, as a network engineer um, and so my final two years of university, I was studying full-time, working full-time. Uh, and then I started to get a bit of an interest in, in security, um, having started off in a network operations centre. Uh, so I started to be the default go-to security guy. And then off the back of that, um, I find, found myself building out the, the actual NOC capability and things really didn't grow too much further uh, for me. So I, I started to have a, a bit of a ceiling there in my career in security. So I, I started chopping around, started uh, looking for a, a, another opportunity. And um, 
in November 2009, I moved over to a company called Stratsec, uh, which became BAE Systems, uh, which became BAE Systems Dedica, BAE Systems Applied Intelligence. Um, I then moved on there, uh, joined another firm called Hack Labs in March, April of 2014. Um, I was there for about six or eight months, and then I went out on my own in January 2015. Uh, four and a half years later, many sleepless uh, nights. Um, I'm uh, now here, sitting in a uh, in a room with you, talking uh, about the you know where my career has actually come from. But I think for me, that genesis of fiddling around and diving into tech problems and being able to troubleshoot uh, has really shaped and, and informed my career over the years. Um, and, and, you know, I, I still like troubleshooting and playing around with things, uh, which, uh, you know, ha- has been a, a big part of the last two weeks having been lecturing down here at, uh, at the Academy. And so uh, um, before we get to the lecturing, so w- what is your business now? Like, what do you... Um, yeah. How do you describe your, your current... Uh, you're a director of a business. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I run a cybersecurity practice in Sydney called Mercury. Um, the, the practice itself um, originally started off as me doing freelance pen testing, uh, which then started to evolve into, well, okay, projects now actually need a, 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 an adversarial security resource, if, if you will, uh, embedded and working in teams. And so... Uh, that involved into some extended projects, uh, which then also saw, saw me start to build out the team. Um, still at its core there is is we heavily focus on pen testing, and we've got about uh, six or eight major clients that we are uh, we are that extension of their security team, um, providing uh, the the adversarial mindset to help shape and influence how they conduct their defence. And um, so, I guess anyone listening that doesn't know what a pen tester is could you just explain quickly yep what a pen tester does and so uh, a pen tester is short for a penetration tester so the the role of a, a penetration tester is to go in and um and identify vulnerabilities associated with a particular technology an organization um or a, a broad area uh, so i think the actual definition does move around a lot um in the the sense that uh, th- there's a, a very diverse range of, of areas with which you can employ penetration testers, uh, whether it's uh, providing um, direct project assurance at a bank or providing consulting services to um, to an organisation, or being that uh, that gate for a project to continue through to say, "Yep, this is at this level," um, all the way through to doing personal research or, or private research or, uh, or being sanctioned by uh, by a company to to go out and um, and dive into to things uh, and then that kind of also extends to to well, do bug hunt do bug bounty hunters fall into that category at the end of the day it's about employing an adversarial mindset in a way that informs a business about how to defend themselves so what does an average week look like um, across this it sounds like you've got a spectrum of adversarial yep. um, capacities at work yep. and they're perhaps at, at, out operating at any particular time so mm-hmm. what's an average sort of week look like in that sort of company so um we are typically booked out about four to six weeks in advance um we will either be employed on a here is the the business start 
enumerating and identifying weaknesses uh, in that business's digital, physical and social infrastructure. Um, or we may have a, a project for a client. That client may come in and say, well, look, we're just about to launch this web application. Uh, we need to understand if there's any risks and we also need to provide assurance to our stakeholders that uh, the information maintained in here is, is secure. Um, and... So that, those would be two examples of, of some projects we might, uh, we might undertake. Other areas we look at as, as well is we may get uh, some, some curveball projects. So uh, we had a client of ours uh, need to be able to unlock a hard drive. Uh, we've had another client of ours uh, that needed to understand how a, a system worked. So... Um, that one was interesting in that uh, it was a particular device. Um, the device itself uh, was uh, breaking copyright law, so they need to understand, well, all right, how is it breaking copyright law? Um, so we've also had, uh, we've also had uh, an extended project, in fact, several extended projects where we've gone in um, at several iterations as the project evolves and we've said, okay, well, here's some security controls that you need to factor in based on our interaction with these systems. Uh, so I think there's periods where there is a standard template, but it's it's something I also try and discourage amongst uh, my team and I is is taking on templated activities. So I guess, yeah, being outside the box somewhat, um, how would you describe sort of the cybersecurity industry in Australia? Like how would you, what do you think is happening in the industry? Is it mature? Is it, what's your general view about it? Um, Interesting question. I think we're we're still relative to say the US and Israel fairly mature uh, compared to a lot of the developing nations. We're we're actually doing okay. Um, I think I think we have uh, as a a country a a heavy focus on user education and awareness or on governance and risk compliance. Uh, as opposed to what I would classify as technological fundamentals. Um, but I think that's really more of an Australian ethos that's evolved over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, it is that we have probably started to, to sh- in one sense, shift away from technology uh, or, or being technically minded and more towards, all right, let's manage and control things, um, which is peculiar in that, uh, I mean, if you have a look at the... Uh, IT and the technology industry in general, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive in that you've seen organisations like Telstra start to be very management and governance oriented uh, and they've started to decline in the market in relative terms. Uh, But then you look at, say, Atlassian, uh, who proudly uh, state that, well, we don't have anyone needing to sell our product. Um, We don't have any management... We don't have the, the same... I would call a tooth-to-tail ratio, as you would with, say, uh, Telstra, and yet they're expanding at a rapid rate. Uh, they have a very loyal customer base. You know, perhaps we need to be taking on those models. Uh, so it, I, yeah, it sounds like it, like that's almost a paradox, in, though, if you're saying sort of the Australian system's moved away from, like, a sys engineer like yourself. Mm. It's, it's, it's looking at the vulnerabilities and mitigations in a system mm. all across a network and, uh, and how you design and plan that network to a consumer, a user focus on that but you're saying the most successful businesses are actually those that are in the former space in a way um, mm. less so in the governance space they're in much more in the in that not quite a sys engineer but a, a technical 
centered business, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I think if you have what I call a collective capability as well as a, a capacity to build something, um, it's that building mindset of creating something that I, I think motivates and inspires and drives people uh, over, say, more of a services industry, which Australia, you know, from a, a broader sense has become. Um, you know, I think if you if you look at it, a, a service is very intangible. Um, well, the sort of services that we we as a country undertake tend to be fairly intangible and fairly single use. Whereas, uh, if we were building products like Atlassian, if we were building, um, if we were building an engineering products and services that were you know that had a an extended mindset, um, I think one we'd be a far more driven nation, but also um, uh, we would have uh, have a lot to show for it as a country. And so I guess that brings us around to cybersecurity education. So, I mean, how thinking of that, how should we be framing our cybersecurity education response? Interesting. So uh, I've just come into this interview after finishing uh, week two of my IDM series down here at the Academy. Um, and we, uh, we really hammer home on the understanding technical fundamentals or, or technological fundamentals uh, first and foremost. Um, the, the class itself is taking students through, all right, this is what the actual technology is, this is what you are seeing on screen, mm. this is what it means, and then off the back of that we're trying to start interpret, interpreting the what I call the so what analysis, which is, all right, what are you seeing what does it mean and, and what can we do about it? And then um, yesterday we uh, were out at one of the solar power farms here in Canberra, uh, understanding the signals that were going through and, and you know where they could actually be likely risks. So being able to have that technological foundation and build up into it to, to shape individual understanding for uh, individuals that didn't necessarily come from that sort of background uh, has really motivated and inspired people to think through, all right, what is this? What does this mean? And then where can I start taking um, taking things from a defensive standpoint? Or um, we we've had a couple of students come through, tear products, tear some of their home equipment apart, and then off the back of that, uh, start to identify new things they can build or new things they can create. Um, and, and you know that's very much the the hacker mindset is let's tear something down, understand how it works understand if there's a risk there but then let's start building things off the back of that and I, I think um, you know for a lot of the students we've had come through here that's been a uh, an incredible experience and so wh what are you teaching you're teaching wi-fi here in the last couple of weeks or yeah so it's um it, it is uh, I, I just refer to it as the wi-fi class uh, the the university title i believe is uh, wireless mobile and internet of things uh, which everything kind of all merges into that space so uh, most of the class focuses on uh, 80211 or what we commonly refer to as wi-fi uh, we then spend a day introducing students to to software defined radio and then we sprinkle in a bit of bluetooth uh, nfc uh, we look at iot systems uh, so uh, a lot of the smart hubs that people would have at home to to uh, to protect their houses or uh, control entertainment equipment uh, we, we start having a look at those, but then we also look at some of the industrial applications. So all of a sudden that same uh, engineering and approach uh, applies to things like building management systems, uh, to uh, industrial systems, uh, so manufacturing and uh, and 
power plants as well. Um, although if, if you are coming down here to, to do uh, that sort of work, you, you'd probably want to look at the critical infrastructure course. Uh, so that there are parallels there, but we, we kind of take things off from that wireless standpoint and then look at all those points of interaction. So I guess so. wireless is famously, or Wi-Fi is famously invented in Australia, or inverted commas, um, by a bunch of people at CSIRO and mm-hmm. the machine that um, is in Canberra, actually, the, the first device that ever transmitted Wi-Fi um, is at the National Museum Collection. It's one of their premier mm-hmm. objects and it does still work. I've seen it operating. I think it's like seven megahertz or something and it's a bridge about five centimetres or something. <laughs> it's, not, it's not massive, um, but it does still work. So, um, but maybe, I mean, could you explain could, what is what is Wi-Fi exactly? Like we all use it, but like what exactly is it technically? So when we talk about Wi-Fi, we... We actually uh, are dealing specifically with uh, the 802.11 protocol, uh, which had come out in the 90s. The idea was, all right, let's extend TCP/IP from wide connections, uh, you know, over through to, to wireless interfaces, and then the the protocol itself is is dealing at the the protocol itself uh, is dealing at the uh, first two layers, the OSI model. So we're, we're looking at uh, the actual physical properties of transmission uh, over uh, radio frequencies, and then how is the data organised one up from that? Uh, and then on top of that, we, we layer on effectively the, the TCP IP stack on top of that. Um, so it's going from an analogue, digital to an analogue signal. Is that what is that what happens? So that, how, I mean, stupid question, but how do the zero and ones function in the, like the... What is a radio signal, I guess? Okay. You're looking for a pen or... No, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for the laser pointer I, I oh. use in the class to actually explain how this happens. And oh, okay. It, right. it, it's peculiar as we... So as we go through the class, um, we have a bunch of EMs and we actually get students to visualise, all right, how does this work on a ones and zeros level? And then we start building up, uh, right. you know, informed packets and we get students to look through Wireshark. And then, right. uh, you know, on day two, you, you get to do a man-in-the-middle attack on your own personal device, uh, which, which is... Some students get a little bit shocked. We we had a few folks from um, uh, from overseas uh, in last semester who then actually were building up from that technical level of oh wait, where I'm working at can see all this data that I'm transmitting. So uh, you know when when you can output clear text HTTP traffic and have a look at the images that you've been looking at, uh, some of those images you you probably don't want uh, your boss or uh, or shall we say anyone else looking at? So uh, you described what is a famous, apparently um, recently renamed person in the middle of attack. Um, wh- what is what is a formerly known as man in the middle of attack? Like, how do, how do you actually do a man in the middle of attack? So in our case, we're just engineering a an access point, uh, but we're engineering that access point off a uh, off a cybersecurity testing distribution, Carly. So. Um, students will create the access point with the hardware and, and software we've given them. Um, they'll then use a uh, they'll then use Wireshark to capture the traffic as it's going from uh, this access point they've created uh, out through to the internet. Um, so it's a, a fairly, uh, in one way, it's a complex setup. In another way, it's a fairly simple setup that uh, students have even been using on on their. Uh, on their personal research assignments. So you sort of, you, you spoof being, um, you, you pretend you're a... We pretend a we're a router. Right. And then um, because we've got all of these extra tool sets on our router, uh, in inverted commas, uh, we get to uh, to do a bit more of an exploration of uh, of what's going across the network. And uh, 
the uh, you know what's happening at that point of uh, of um, uh, of transmission. So you can go from day two to just a person in the middle attack to day five, where you're looking at how would you take down a piece of critical infrastructure, IoT, um, industrial infrastructure that's using Wi-Fi in, in that sort of so yeah. You're going from like one transmission to like multiple, presumably. Yeah, um, so we're, we're, we're actually looking at what I call a total systems approach at that point. So you're, you're looking at both uh, a couple of wireless interfaces, but then where do they interconnect to and what does, you know, how can those connections be, be influenced? But then it's also, and one thing I always like to build off the back of that is, is you know, what is the motivation behind this? And uh, when we look at uh, threats and, you know, when we look at, threats actually acting on some of these issues we're identifying it's a case of well it's not the guy it's not the you know it's not the stereotypical white guy in the hoodie running around doing something because I'll, I'll tell you right now most of those guys are you know are, are occupied doing other things um so we, we start to then break down well why would you attack a piece of critical infrastructure and things uh, we've had some fantastic conversations that have come out of this of well if you're the coal industry and you want to take down renewable energy um, or, or demonstrate that renewable energy is a terrible idea, this is one path. Or if uh, if you're, you're trading energy on the Australian Energy Market Organisation, this is another path. And so off the off this technical fundament, fundamentals piece and off this technical grounding, students are actually able to flesh out these ideas um, and then understand, okay, well, we kind of need this stuff to function, uh, but you know, if the risks are X, Y, and Z, or the threats that are going to act on these risks, it, you know, there are other ways disrupted than just simply going well, secure all the tech. So that's kind of returning to your philosophy of, um, or Edward's philosophy in a sense of that you can, from a technical understanding, um, and a sort of a reverse engineering understanding of how something technically functions out into. Um, uh, just humans interfacing with that tech can then <coughs> think outside the square or naturally develop up, building up either a, um, the possibilities of negative or positive, um, inverted commas, uh, responses to technology. So you're sort of saying, well, if you put humans and explain technology to them, we'll kind of fundamentally begin to imagine um, other alternatives from that. Is that what you... I don't yeah. know if you have a philosophy, but... Uh. Well, I, I think it also comes back to, a, a, you know, I, I said at the start of this conversation, I, I, I would call myself a pen tester, cybersecurity consultant. You know, what what is cyber? And this is a question I always like asking people. What is cyber? Is it technology? Then why don't we just call it technology? It's it's that intersection between uh, the the digital, the physical and the social environment um, and we we often fail to, to think about this, and then we start going down these tangents of well, no, it's just computers, and um, or, or it's it's just ones and zeros, or it's just anonymous, and people start to get really quite blinkered on what it means, and I think that's going to be a danger for um, you know for us as uh, as individuals, but collectively as as an industry. Um, we're not going to be of any value. Um, so we're going to get tied into like compliance. Uh, just like uh, I've heard you say before, like we need to think about the why yep. as well as just the doing this blah, 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 by the mm. checklist sort of thing, by the manual. Yeah. Um, so we need to think conceptually about. Yeah, well, it's it's also 
come back at the and look at the the dot com bubble uh, burst that happened twenty years ago. It happened because people were doing these massive investments into technology that made absolutely no sense. Um, <laughs> I, I always think of. Uh, I'm not too sure if it was legitimate or not, but pets overnight or, you know, ordering pets online or uh, people would just have these random ordering services that, um, yeah, this isn't worth millions of dollars. It's, you know, it's a couple of bucks here and there. Or uh, if if you ever get the chance, you've got um, uh, the TV series Silicon Valley where the guy starts in the first season, this one guy starts talking up his app and it's an app to write down where you would remember you, you parked your car. It's like, well, wait, when I just write that down on a piece of paper? And it's like, well, it comes back to we're, we're coming up with these weird and wonderful ideas that make absolutely no sense. And so and, until we start getting this, uh, either this technological grounding of, well, this is what the technology can deliver, or on top of that, this even a human grounding of, um, this is actually a legitimate human requirement. Um, so what's the bubble of today that we're not noticing, do you reckon? Mm. I would say we're probably seeing a lot of... I would actually probably even say we're starting to, to see a rehash of the dot-com bubble. Uh, we're seeing a lot of services pop up, um, classify themselves as, as the sharing economy, and it's like, well, what's this contributing? Um, you know, I think we're we're probably starting to, to peek out on, on a couple of these. I mean... Uh, you know, we're, we're starting to see just services pop up that make no sense. I mean, my, my favourite one was in China recently was the uh, uh, was the umbrella sharing app. Umbrella sharing? Yeah, so the, the idea is uh, you'd leave an umbrella on a... Um, uh, you'd leave an umbrella somewhere in public in the same way that you'd leave one of those scooters uh, that you, you see littered uh, around the streets of Sydney. Yeah. You'd just leave this and, you know, someone would be able to... to through their through their honesty, yeah, order that order that umbrella and walk away with it, and hopefully return it. Now, uh, I don't think that actually ended particularly well uh, for them. So I think we're we're probably starting to see nothing as distinct as that here in Australia. But I I, I fear we're going to start seeing just a, a lot of startups that uh, that just have no uh, that have no business uh, well let's just call it a business requirement then right. they're not going to have some business foundation to them because yeah, i guess like those the bikes that the umbrella they're like they're financialization uh, schemes really to, to suck in a massive amount of money at any one point and then and mm. then it's, then run out of the hood i guess yeah um and that's what the dot-com bubble was essentially so um mm. um yeah so um so uh, what, what do you think it is that we do need then um, at the moment? I mean, uh, if we don't need, I mean, are we part? Are we past the disruption period? I mean, are we into something else now? Or? I I think we're probably going to start seeing, I mean, probably in my experience and in my industry, I think cybersecurity itself, we've had a lot of businesses all of a sudden start up. I sense we're probably going to start seeing over the next 12 to 18 months a consolidation of, of a lot of the smaller businesses. Um, I think across, and I think that will probably also translate across Australia of businesses will either consolidate or people will actually realise that there's no value in certain businesses. I don't think it will be the dramatic dot-com 
burst that we saw back in the nineties. But I think we'll, we'll start to see the we'll start to see the landscape adjust to something that's a little bit more sensible. So that's likely to be in. Is that because the larger, um, I guess, I guess the vulnerability, the mitigation tools, um, as they start to become more uniform, that they're probably always a, a spot for a niche like a like a firm like yours, a pen testing that's very specific and directional. But you mean uh, the scale? I mean, just that. Um, I guess I'm asking what sort of companies are likely to be the ones that you think might be are they in an area or are they just not delivering a business need or uh, I think so I, I did a bit of an analysis of uh, the, the pen testing market at the start of the year um, uh, we so I enumerated about 144 firms that are providing pen testing services um, I, I did find one brutal brutal honesty with it is that I believe I recorded about 80 or 90 of them uh, either had 10% or less of onshore people here in Australia delivering testing services so it's like what is it that you're actually doing here because in canberra that's the first thing you ask any company is like where are you based uh, where's your database uh, who owns your company um yeah certainly in the businesses in canberra that'd be the first thing you'd be asking like it's a national security issue in a sense like yeah um rather than so that's sort of internationalizing so i guess you're outsourcing the real because i mean some of this is still quite labor intensive mm. you still need quite a few humans to do the work even though this myth about software being magic there's actually a lot of people who need to to build and testing well, it's, it's the analytical element that's that's labor intensive oh, right, okay. um and so you know where my team and i are at where we run very lean in that we have um some really effective tooling that we've developed over the last two three years um but the emphasis is on what we derive from that and I think that's actually going to be a, a big risk and it's a big gap that I'm seeing as uh, as the industry progresses is is the sort of individuals that we need to be generating aren't what we would call tool monkeys. It's capable analysts that can actually interpret the data that's being put in front of them. Um, and then beyond interpreting data put in front of them, uh, understand where there's gaps in the data. I mean, you think about it, if a tool's just giving you a bunch of green lights, that doesn't necessarily indicate that everything's okay. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, of a movie back in the 70s or 80s, The, the China Syndrome, right. uh, where the, 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 the water on the, uh, the reactor uh, is actually well below what it should be and the, the core's exposed, and, but the tools, the, the tools and the instruments they were looking at said it was all okay. So it's it's one of those those uh, those things of uh, I th- I think within our industry uh, our biggest requirement right now is building critical thinkers. And so I, I better let you get back to your students in a minute. <laughs> but to follow up on that last point, so how do you build a critical thinker? Is it just like your fifteen years of experience? Is that the only way to do it, or can you train for that? experience you've had uh look the the way the way we uh we deliver in class is i i operate on um on non-emotional stimulus of here is an outcome i need you to achieve a, a in this case it's a ctf style flag event you need to reach that flag here's some broad guidance on how to get there you have to solve this problem so a, as opposed to a, a course that focus on focuses on regurgitation or on you being able to push buttons in the right sequence, 
I, I force students to actually troubleshoot their equipment, troubleshoot what they're doing, understand and, and interact. And I'm, I'm usually sitting there as well and taking them through things. Um, but you, you need to almost have that sequence of events learning. That that's, that's the opposite of the certification type model that we're all used to. You just yeah, up yeah. and get your cert. And yeah, do your 125 yeah. multiple choice questions exactly, and then you yeah. can, you know, you then have post-nominal titles. It's riskier though, right? Because you think, like you as an educator, how do you know you're going to get that outcome from those? Like it's more work mm. for you for a start. Yep. But how do you also, it's harder for a mass market to like, to verify bang, bang, bang. You, you're going to hit, everyone's going to hit those marks at an mm-hmm. average, a bell curve, of blah, blah, blah. They're, they're going to get a richer experience with you. Yep. But how do you make sure that it works? <sighs> Interesting question. Yeah. Well, I'll come back and, and sort of say you're dealing with human beings um, human beings are naturally curious. They will start to go down these wonderful rabbit holes. Sometimes they'll get a bit lost and you'll have to, to grab them by the feet and pull them back out. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it comes back to human beings want to learn, they want to discover. Um, you know, it's it's a natural tendency. Why would we not harness, you know, mil- millions of years of evolution to uh, to employ something that we already have? Indeed. Well... I'm going to let you get back to those uh, very curious (laughs) students who are waiting at the doorstep behind us there. No Um, worries. Thanks again. No worries. Thanks again, mate. Cheers. Bye. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.